Welcome to this installment of Context Clues. Our upcoming series is going to explore an archetype long in the making, a belligerent folk hero of unmeasurable chaos enshrined in a bewildered mugshot beside bizarre headlines like Florida man arrested for calling 911 after his cat was denied entry into strip club. If you are somehow unfamiliar with this long-lasting viral meme, Florida Man emerged in 2012 with the mass sharing of the most outlandish arrest stories out of the Sunshine State. Our next episode will explore the reasons that Florida Man has held our attention and what it is about the history of this place called the weirdest state in the nation that laid the groundwork for this new American archetype to materialize from our collective subconscious. We're going to look at the unique history of Florida and the people who have lived there to see that this Florida man is not a new construction, but a lasting character whose reappearance was all but inevitable. But behind the fun of these headlines, the humor of these memes and mugshots, there is, as always, a dark underbelly, easy to ignore, one that once explored may lead us to consider the fates of those whose wild antics give us a digital second's worth of precious amusement. Now, if you were to conjure in your mind the archetypal Florida man, you might see before you a relative of a freak show staple, the tattooed man, a face covered in fading, indecipherable ink. The look and the behavior of our Florida men create a kind of non-consensual sideshow where the featured freaks are not there to purposefully entertain and certainly not there to make a buck off the crowd. There is also something of the trash talk show in Florida Man's lineage, the mass gawking at the human oddities of a particular cultural moment, as well as its opposing force, the eugenic-tinged, highbrow opinion of what and who the middle and upper classes deem trash. Now here's an excerpt from our episode called trash talk shows. In 1989, a group of white men and one white woman staged an hour-and-a-half roundtable discussion about tabloid talk shows, featuring Phil Donahue, Morton Downey Jr., who was another host known for getting into screaming fights with his guests, Larry King, Jack Nelson of the New York Times, and other serious journalists, and several network and newspaper executives. I think we're, we're not talking so much about what's journalism and what's not journalism as what's good taste and what's bad taste, what's good manners, what's bad manners. And I think television now is overrun with bad taste and bad manners. You wrote in one of your columns it was just... Television.
diseducating Americans. Yeah, it may be making us dumber. I mean, all the, all the uh, scholastic, t- if that's possible. No, I didn't mean wow. that. <laughs> That was renowned media critic Tom Shales of the Washington Post, who also had this kind of snooty, snotty thing to say in an editorial from the year before. Geraldo, the barrel bottom talk hour starring dauntless panderer Geraldo Rivera, has dealt in recent weeks with transsexuals and their families, swinging sexual suicide, mud wrestling women, Charles Manson, Serial killers, kids who kill, battered women who kill, and, of course, male strippers. So, transgender people who have families were the first on the list of these American perversions, coming before serial killers, before Charles Manson. Shales, who would win the Pulitzer Prize for his cultural criticism that very year, followed up with this lovely condescending statement. Donahue remains the most frequently substantive of the shows, but this week, Phil flounced around in a skirt for a peek at cross-dressing. Around the same time, Democratic Senator Joseph Lieberman and conservative activist, Secretary of Education under Reagan and enormous war on drugs fanboy William Bennett began working on what they called the revolt of the revolted, as they so charmingly put it. Interestingly, both men had found recent success in their pact together, pushing Time Warner to drop all gangsta rap artists from their label. These hosts like Donahue, Geraldo, and Jerry Springer, who each have their own pretty impressive history in progressive politics, often pointed out this elitism, this pearl-clutching of intellectuals, the judgments they placed that seemed based in class, that seemed based in the same prejudices that permeated America. They were just doing it with good manners and with good taste. When you look at it this way, the audiences of these talk shows skew toward working-class black and white audiences, with Jerry Springer holding the number one spot for years. Around the same time as this roundtable discussion, critic Martin Kitman, writing for Newsweek and CNN, said, quote, The scariest thing about the show to me is the studio audience chanting Jerry, Jerry, mostly yums, young urban males and misses as unrestrained as ever. This human zoo is a lot funnier than most new network sitcoms. It's telling to me that he would use language this specific in reference to freak shows, with human zoos usually displaying black people and other people of color as animals, as monsters, as only half-human, and as profoundly unintelligent, as we cover in detail in our episode called Monsters. The freak shows that existed from the mid-1800s up through the mid-1900s are often compared to trash talk shows. And like talk shows, they were a deeply complicated and nuanced place. They could promote profoundly racist and white supremacist views through their human zoos. And of course, they also invited the masses to gawk at 
abnormal individuals at a hefty profit for the showman. But at the same time, it was also a venue for the previously unseen, like those with physical disabilities as well as gender nonconformists. The bearded lady is the most famous example, and hermaphrodites, in this case simply those who the audience couldn't classify as explicitly a man or a woman, were some of the most popular acts, and they were met with wonder. One such freak, going by Albert Alberta, either had a medical condition or was just an early genderqueer who knew how to woo an audience, which is a specialty of ours. Albert Alberta, who used male pronouns, would work out one side of his body only, with the other half shaved either with a real breast growing from that medical condition or, in other reports, a fake one filled with birdseed. Either way, the crowd freaking loved it. When we look back at freak shows, the most common refrain is, How sad. Look at these poor people being exploited by a showman so he can get rich off their pitiable abnormalities. But freaks were also known to pickpocket the audience, give incorrect change, and gouge them to hell for cheap souvenirs. Often, they had a good deal of control over their acts and made pretty decent money, and a handful even became rich, which was a really big deal when there weren't a lot of career opportunities for folks like this. Despite the obvious truth that vulnerable people were being exploited for profit, many of them had a lot more agency than we like to remember, and maybe they don't need so much of our pity but maybe they need our respect. So, similar to their reaction to shock talk shows, the highbrow community of the 1920s hated freak shows, even calling them lowbrow trash specifically, something for uncouth poor people to do. But the term highbrow actually comes from phrenology, which is something we cover in detail in our episode on quackery. At the time, doctors actually believed that the shape of the skull determined everything about a person's personality, health, and the value of their genetic stock. The higher the brow, which they conveniently claimed was a natural feature of wealthy white people, the smarter and more worthy the person was considered. Lowbrow, then, of course, meant the opposite, and usually referred specifically to people of color, poor white people, people with disabilities, and gender nonconforming individuals. Phrenology helped fuel the popular eugenics movement of the time, with upper-class Americans quite charmed by the idea of creating a perfect race of smart, affluent white Americans. No trash allowed. The freaks of America wouldn't be closeted anymore, nor would they be put on vulgar display. Instead, they'd be used for medical experiments or tossed into asylums for their own good, for the good of medicine and science, or even bred out of the culture entirely. 
as we'll see in our upcoming episode, the story that kicked off this long-lasting viral Florida man meme was not one of poorly wrestled gators or drunken Walmart shenanigans, but something much, much darker. Florida cannibal shot dead after eating homeless man's face. Considered the very first Florida man by those who've studied the phenomenon, the Miami cannibal story of 2012 was so awful as to feel unreal, like an urban legend, a horror movie. But of course, like all stories, it was rife with misinformation, taking on a life of its own and adding to the constant revolving door of fake drug panics that take our attention away from structural issues like the lack of mental health support. The harsh criminalization of drugs over the last century led to exploding prison populations. And by the time the Reagan and Clinton administrations got involved, nonviolent drug law offenses increased from 50,000 in 1980 to over 400,000 by 1997. And to this day, the United States has by far the largest prison population in the world. Florida's is the third largest in the country. Now, here's an excerpt from Drugs. When a security camera caught footage of a 31-year-old Florida resident crouched over a bearded homeless man, gouging out his eyes and actually eating his face, the news and social media quickly dubbed him the Miami Zombie. At the end of the 18-minute attack, police shot and killed him, and then claimed in interviews that he was most likely possessed by the newest drug epidemic, bath salts. A few years later, a young man stabbed a couple in their suburban home and then was found by a neighbor eating the face of the husband. He was largely speculated to have been under the influence of a new synthetic drug called Flocka. The problem was that these two men were not under the influence of those drugs, or any drugs at all aside from a trace amount of marijuana. Nonetheless, these stories have become living, breathing manifestations of the worst kind of hysterical drug rhetoric, of zombies and monsters and subhuman animals, aggressors with superhuman strength and an imperviousness to police bullets. The news is a dramatic rolling marquee of drug horror stories, promises that these substances truly threaten the good sweethearts of the suburbs and the heartland, all while pharmaceutical versions almost chemically identical are marketed for legal consumption to treat medical conditions. For this episode, we'll see how drug hysteria has long been manufactured by politicians with specific groups in mind, and how the language around these panics continues to inform how we think of people who use drugs right up to the present day. From opium to cocaine to marijuana to LSD to PCP to crack to meth, this dramatic language also expresses America's centuries-long anxiety of the other and the ways we literally dehumanize those who cause a threat to the established social order by marking them dangerous beasts in need of social control and even long-term imprisonment. Many of us were drafted to fight in America's war on drugs as kids and teens in the 80s and 90s by serious police officers dispatched to our classrooms with coloring books and sticker badges, ready to sign us up into a long, embittered battle that turned a public health issue into a national security threat.
More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. Up until the 20th century, America's relationship to drugs was not one that was especially fraught. It was common for common people to purchase drugs like cocaine and opium over-the-counter in products such as Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup Laced with Opium. It wasn't until different drugs began to represent populations that the dominant culture considered a threat, most often racial others, that drugs became a focus of political crusades. First, it was Chinese laborers that were accused of undermining working-class whites with cheaper labor, and the first-ever drug laws were passed in San Francisco in 1875, as politicians made claims that Chinese men were luring and raping white women by drugging them with opium. At the turn of the century, as the southern states adjusted to the outlawing of slavery, a new media picture of the cocaineized black man rose alongside the height of lynching and legalized segregation, of voting laws designed to disempower former slaves, and something called black codes, which doled out harsher punishments for black people accused of the same crimes as white people. Cocaine proved an easy symbol for the fear of these free black folks and what their freedom meant for white supremacy. 
an article called Negro Cocaine Fiends Are the New Southern Menace, written for the New York Times in 1914, claimed that cocaine gave black men a kind of superhuman strength. And more than that, an imperviousness to the bullets of police, as well as better accuracy when shooting guns. Newspapers reported that police departments had actually been forced to increase the caliber of their guns from 32 to 38. Like with opium and the Chinese, the media and politicians also painted black men on cocaine as sexual threats to white women. That same year, these racial fears solidified themselves into major legislation, and the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was passed. While debating the law, lawmakers claimed that the drug made minority groups into social dangers, linking opium to the Chinese, cocaine to drug-crazed, sex-mad Negroes, and marijuana to the Mexicans. Dr. Hamilton Wright testified that drugs caused black people to rebel against white authority. Dr. Christopher Koch of the State Pharmacy Board of Pennsylvania testified that, quote, most of the attacks upon the white women of the South are the direct result of the cocaine-crazed Negro brain. This early symbolic imagery of the monstrous other settled deep into the American subconscious, lending itself to political fear-mongering for the next 150 years, and in a series of escalations of policy, America would create the association of people who use drugs as violent criminals and punish them as such. Since the 2000 election, when Florida became a presidential recount battleground between Al Gore and George W. Bush, just less than 600 votes separating the two candidates, the state, whose electoral college votes would decide the next president of the United States, was thrust into the spotlight. When the outcome fell, legitimately or not, in favor of Bush, it felt to many Democrats like it was Florida's fault. And the snark amped up on every late night talk show with jokes about the backward backwater nature of Florida rednecks ruining the country with their stupidity by voting for someone equally stupid. This seemed to amount to a kind of blame shifting from establishment Republicans and the innumerable well-off retirees that make up much of Florida's Republican voter bloc to the working class or impoverished white rednecks that seemed to represent the trashy state that was ruining the country single-handedly. But you see, 200 years before this contentious election, the state was full of what were then called Florida crackers, the earliest form of the white trash outlaw that intellectuals found to be pitiable, deeply uncouth, freak show oddities. Here's an excerpt from Rednecks. Horror movies say more about the prevailing cultural fears of their time than most other popular culture media. These films have only a short amount of time to scare the audience as much as possible, and building an entire separate world of horror proves difficult in 120 minutes. As a result, directors rely on already embedded fears, and in a feedback loop, they both illustrate current anxieties and reinforce them as well. 
I recently watched the 1972 horror movie Deliverance, a film nominated for several Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It's certainly the most famous pop cultural portrait of the region called Appalachia that's ever been made. And it would go on to inform the subgenre known as hillbilly horror up to the present day. In the film, four men from the city of Atlanta seeking adventure canoe down a raging river in northwestern Georgia and are sexually assaulted and picked off one by one by a group of evil hillbillies hell-bent on punishing them for their uppity class roots. In the most famous scene of the film, one of the men plays his guitar along with a boy implied to be inbred, who impresses the men with his rendition of dueling banjos. Billy Redden, the 15-year-old boy scouted from the local school to play the character known only as the Banjo Boy, became an archetype of Appalachia. Described in the script as inbred, Billy was not actually physically or mentally disabled, but the cast and crew shaved his head and used makeup in order to make him appear so, and that idea of him lasts into the present day. One star of the film and notorious asshole John Voight allegedly said of Billy with absolutely no evidence, quote, He was a boy who had a genetic imbalance, a product of his mother and his brother, I think. Hillbilly horror is still popular and is rarely met with much criticism for its offensive portrayals of Appalachians and poor white rural folks in general. The Hills Have Eyes, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and more recently the Wrong Turn series all share a sense of the inbred, sociopathically violent, dangerous, grinning, stupid slayers of the middle-class city dwellers and suburbanites in their dark, wooded margins of our civilization. These American monsters are presented with a complete lack of the traits of the middle class, with no emulation of the well-mannered elitism that separated them from the others of whiteness. Does the word Appalachia, the word hillbilly, conjure up for you visions of seething racism and homophobia, of slurs dripping brown with chewing tobacco from the lips of evil white trash rednecks who live in shacks with gutted deer hanging outside their door? The archetype of the American redneck is far more complicated than we wish to believe. As the coal industry continued to grow and began to automate much of the work that the unions had fought for, Appalachians started leaving the region to find stable work in the factories in city centers. In a migration along a symbolic route known as the Hillbilly Highway, thousands entered the city of Chicago and they were not met with a warm welcome. In fact, many businesses refused to serve those they called hillbillies and would hang signs outside that said, quote, no Southerners need apply. The sudden influx of these impoverished whites shook the affluent Southerners to their cores, who had previously clung to that idea that only people of color could be that poor, that degenerate as they viewed them, and a greater need to scientifically classify and solidify categories of race emerged to reinforce, of course, white supremacy. 
In the following years, a new term rose to scientific and psychological prominence, feeble-mindedness, and it applied often to those deemed as white trash people. Of course, black people and other people of color needed no qualifier to be deemed trash and were considered feeble-minded as a whole, while whites would be categorized as such based on an early version of the IQ test. These IQ tests, however, were bound to show the results that reinforce the racist and classist views of the scientists and the elites that supported them, as poor whites and minorities in the South did not receive the same access to education, an issue that predated the Civil War and still exists today. These IQ tests were touted by University of Virginia Dean Harvey Ernest Jordan, who called his home state the perfect laboratory to compare those named the first families of Virginia with what he considered the worst stock, the feeble-minded poor. Good job, everybody, doing your context clues homework for our upcoming episode on Florida Man. If you'd like to listen to the full episodes included in this collection, check out Trash Talk Shows, Drugs, and Rednecks. Sounds like a good time. This was American Hysteria. Find us at patreon.com slash American Hysteria. And we'll be back next week with our episode called Florida Man. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and thanks to Riley Smith for putting this episode together. I hope you have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.